Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Russian Empire History Podcast, the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. I'm your host, J.P. Bristow, and this is Season 1, The Forest, the Steppe, and the Birth of the Russian Empire. Episode 37, Vladimir the Great Part 2, Sacrifices and Choices. Thank you to new patron, Prince Christopher, and to the new subscribers on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks also to everyone hitting the subscribe button on YouTube. That number is growing. It would be great if we could reach the monetization thresholds by the end of the year, which would, among other things, let me start releasing the member episodes on YouTube too. Who's listening today who's been here since the beginning? I started writing this episode two years to the day since the podcast started. And here we are, entering the golden age of medieval Rus. Some of you might be wondering when season one is going to end, so maybe it's worth talking about plans. My initial plan was for season one to last around three years. I expect it will be the longest season, as it's essentially intended to cover the entire pre-story from 6,000 years ago to the conquest of Kazan and the start of the Russian Empire. My bit behind the schedule I originally sketched out, because sometimes life gets in the way, but I hope to get there by the end of next year. After that, seasons will be shorter and more thematically focused. The rest of this season is going to be quite tightly focused on the Rus and then the emergence of Muscovy, but don't worry, we'll still be giving the other peoples their due, and then they will have a growing role as we get into the Imperial period. Anyway, back to today's show. It's another shorter one, but don't worry, next episode is going to be a big one. So, we left Vladimir having killed his brother and taken Kiev, looking to start consolidating and building, turning Rus from a gaggle of cities ruled by a foreign elite into one of the most powerful kingdoms in medieval Europe. Now is the time for him to start earning his sobriquet, the Great. So let's see what the tale has to say about him. The year 982. The Vyachians went to war, but Vladimir attacked them and conquered them for a second time. The following year he conquers the Yatvingians. He returns to Kiev to celebrate by sacrificing to his idols. The elders and the boyars think it would be a great idea to cast lots and then sacrifice whoever the lot falls to. There was a Varangian from Greece living in Kiev, near the spot where Vladimir would later build the Church of the Holy Virgin. This Greek was a Christian, and he had a handsome son, to whom, driven by hatred, the devil made the lot fall. So when the people came and said, The lot has fallen on your son, the gods have claimed him as their own, let us sacrifice him. So the people came and said, the lot has fallen on your son. The gods have claimed him as their own. Let us sacrifice him. But the Varangians said, These are not gods. They are only idols of wood. Tomorrow they will rot away. But the god whom the Greeks serve and worship is one. It is he who made the heaven and earth, the moon and the sun, and people, and gives us life. What have your gods created? They are made themselves. I will not give up my son to devils. 
So the messengers went back. They raised the people and marched against the Varangian, breaking down the walls around his house. They called on him to surrender his son to be given to the gods. The Greek stood his ground. If they be gods, he said, let one of them come and get my son. The people were enraged. They killed them, and no one knows where they have been buried. Here the chronicle digresses into a lament about the pagan Rus, lost in ignorance to the devil, who rejoiced and knew little of his impending ruin. He, that is the devil, had forgotten what is written. I will call those my people who are not my people, and the message of the apostles has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Just as the Holy Fathers trampled him under their feet, so it shall be again. Anyway, meanwhile, Vladimir is back fighting. He attacks the Radomitians with their general named Wolfstail. Apparently the Rus thought it was hilarious to laugh at the Radomitians for being beaten by a Wolfstail. Then he went with his uncle Dobrynia to attack the Bulgars. He brought the Torks on horseback and conquered the Bulgars. Dobrynia told Vladimir, quote, I have seen the prisoners who wear boots. They will not pay us tribute. Let us rather look for foes with bast shoes. End quote. So Vladimir made peace with the Bulgars, and the Bulgars declared there would be peace until stone floats and straw sinks. In 986, Muslim Bulgars came to Vladimir and said, You are a wise and prudent prince, but you have no religion. Join us and revere Muhammad. Vladimir asked them what their religion involved. They said that they believed in God, and Muhammad had told them to practice circumcision, not eat pork, not drink wine, and promised complete fulfillment of their carnal desires after death. Seventy fair women each. Apparently they also said other false things that the chronicler is embarrassed to repeat. Vladimir was impressed with the women and indulgence aspects, but put off by the lack of pork and wine. Drinking, he famously said, is the joy of the Rus. They cannot exist without it. Next, a mission of Germans from the Pope turned up. They likewise argued for their religion, telling him that their god made everything while his idols were just wood. After them, some Jewish Hazars arrived. They told him that the Christians worshipped the one they had crucified, but they believed in the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Vladimir asked where their native land was, and they said Jerusalem. God had been angry and had scattered them across the world. What, said Vladimir? How can you go around claiming to teach anybody anything if you are outcasts? Finally, a scholar arrived from the Greeks. They started off by disparaging the Bulgars and making bizarre claims about Muslims mixing their excrement with water and using it to anoint their beards. Then they accused the Roman mission of misrepresenting Christianity. Vladimir notes that the Jews had also been here and told him that the Germans and Greeks worshipped a man that they had crucified. Yes, the Greeks agreed they did. And then they seized their opening for a long, long digression that starts off in the beginning. God created heaven and earth and goes on from there for a full ten pages before finally concluding the unbaptized shall be tormented with fire. Vladimir is impressed. He gives the scholar many gifts and dismisses him with honor. 
Ladime then calls together his boyars and elders, says that his envoys have returned, and asks for a report. Vladimir calls together his boyars and elders. Uh, they discuss the reports by these representatives of various religions, and they advise him that he should send out his own messengers to verify them. Vladimir sends out his messengers, and then later he lets his boyars and elders know that the envoys have returned and asks for a report. The envoys report, and let's quote the passage to round out this section. We travelled to the Bulgars and saw how they worship in their temple, called a mosque, while they stand ungirt. The Bulgar bows, sits down, looks around like one possessed. There's no happiness among them, only sorrow and a dreadful stench. Their religion is not good. Then we went among the Germans, and we saw them performing many ceremonies in their temples, but we beheld no glory there. Then we went to Greece. And the Greeks led us to the edifices where they worshipped their god, and we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. For on earth there is no such splendour or beauty, and we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells there among men, and their service is fairer than the ceremonies of other nations. We cannot forget their beauty. Every man, after tasting something sweet, is afterwards unwilling to accept that which is bitter, and therefore we can no longer dwell here. End quote. The boyars agree, telling Vladimir that if the Greek faith was evil, his grandmother Olga, who was wiser than anyone, would never have accepted it. Vladimir then asked whether they should accept baptism, and they told him it was up to him. But Vladimir did not choose to get baptised. So, after an interlude of relatively straightforward chronicle over the last couple of episodes, I think you can see that we are once again venturing into the metaphorical or propagandistic here. The reason is clear enough. We're coming right up to the conversion of Rus, and so the chronicler is going to be picking up on the story arc that started back with Olga. But I'm not going to cover that in too much detail today. That's all going to come together next time. Besides Vladimir's continuing campaigns of conquest, the most important parts of this section of the tale are the story of the Varangian martyrs and what we might call the religious advocates, which combine the factual and the programmatic aspects of the chronicle. The tale of the Varangian martyrs starts off simply enough. Vladimir, who has so far been depicted as a warmongering, womanizing pagan, returns from one of his campaigns and decides to make a sacrifice to his idols. The chosen victims turn out to be Christians. Although the story seems quite straightforward and similar to many other hagiographical tales of martyrs, you might think it's a little strange to see Vladimir presented as the villain, and that could be a clue that there's more to the story than meets the eye. Although, as we've heard previously, there had indeed already been Christians in Rus for a couple of generations, 
And the archaeological record shows cross pendants and other Christian attributes in graves from the mid-10th century. This episode, which is probably almost entirely invented, is actually the framing device to open the story of Vladimir's conversion, which the chronicler effectively sets out in the first line. Now there was a certain Varangian whose house was situated by the spot where now stands the Church of the Holy Virgin, which Vladimir built, letting you know that although Vladimir is here murdering believers, one day he will be building churches. All we have seen so far of Vladimir is a fratricidal pagan warrior consumed by lust, so building churches is obviously going to be a major transformation. The story itself is a minor incident. The chronicler gets to put some words in the Varangian's mouth about the worthlessness of Rus' idols in comparison with the Christian god, and to establish that Rus is the habitation of the devil, a situation that can be changed through the teachings of the apostles. The phrase is used talking about the idols as merely things created by human hands from natural materials that will rot away. Compared to the eternal Christian God beyond the physical world, are figures of speech taken directly from the Bible and certainly inserts by the monks writing the chronicle. In the Bible, the apostles were the eleven disciples other than Judas. The men who had followed Jesus through his ministry received his teaching and then got out into the world to spread the good news. But there was another apostle who many would argue was the most important apostle of all, Paul. Paul never met Jesus, the man. Rather, he encountered a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, a life-changing experience for the man who had until that point been a Jew opposed to Christianity. In the biblical story of Paul, before he underwent his conversion experience, he was a persecutor of Christians. In the tale of bygone years, before Vladimir undergoes his conversion experience, he is a persecutor of Christians, sacrificing them to his idols. The reason why the story of the Varangian martyrs has been included in the tale is to set up the parallels between the stories of Vladimir and Paul as well as a certain other ruler who was also compared to Paul. For another hint, remember that Olga was given the title of Equal to the Apostles when she was beatified. We'll get into that properly in the next episode, but in case you're not familiar with the story of Paul, maybe you could consider it your homework to look it up before the next episode, because there's going to be some more parallels coming. In case anybody is wondering, although we know that Scandinavians made human sacrifices and there are some references to the Scandinavian Rus doing the same, we do not have any evidence of human sacrifice among the early Slavs or any actual evidence that the 10th century Rus were carrying out human sacrifices like this. Whether or not these sacrifices were taking place, we start to get the feeling that Vladimir's new pagan religion isn't working out for him. This is quite understandable since, as mentioned last episode, it didn't provide the necessary institutional structure to serve the purpose of a state religion effectively. And although there are those considerations of asserting independence through state religion, 
there's also the ability to develop alliances. Vladimir might have been starting to feel a bit isolated. There were Muslims to the east, Greek Orthodox Christians to the south, German Catholics to the west, including the population of those towns across the Buch that he had recently conquered. Even in the north, friends who had sheltered him or sought shelter of their own at his court were busy Christianizing Scandinavia. We can read some signs of this in some of the Scandinavian sagas which describe Olaf Tryggvason staying at Vladimir's court and how he, who would become Saint Olaf just a few decades later, declined to take part in Vladimir's pagan rites. So the tale relates how Vladimir started researching his religious options, first receiving guests and then sending out his own envoys for verification. You probably noticed that this story is somewhat similar to that of the Khazar conversion, and maybe you're thinking that stories like this where competing interests put their arguments to the king are just a trope. To a certain extent, they may be, but... It's a trope that was based on how things actually happened, as it was also true that the king would invite and hear counsel in Rus as in other lands. In this case, we actually have some independent evidence to support the story, because we have Islamic records saying that Vladimir sent an emissary to Khwarezm, asking that scholars be sent to teach him about Islam. And if he did send messengers to the Muslims, then it's very likely that he also sent messengers to the Germans and Greeks as well. So the story in the tale most likely has a kernel of truth, even if it's embellished and presented in, and presented in an entirely one-sided manner. Sending for scholars from Khwarezm might seem a bit strange, given that Muslim Bulgar was next door. The tale tells us that Vladimir attacked the Bulgars in 985. It's a notable campaign because it's the only one the tale says involved his uncle and mentor, Dobrynya. Dobrynya was still running Novgorod, and as mentioned last time, the supply of silver from the Volga routes was collapsing due to the effects of Sviatoslav and the Orkus destroying Khazaria and deteriorating conditions in the Caliphate. As Novgorod was closely tied to the Volga trade, it's quite likely that this campaign could have been a reaction to these economic processes. Vladimir brought the people the tale caused Turks along. This is the same Orkus Turks that his father had allied with against the Khazars. This time round, the alliance does not seem to have been so successful. Although it appears that the Rus and the Turks defeated the Bulgars, the victory does not seem to have earned them anything. Dobrynya says to Vladimir, I have seen the prisoners who all wear boots. They will not pay us tribute. Let us look for foes with bast shoes. The prisoners who wear boots are the Bulgars. Boots were the footwear of the steppe since at least the Scythians and probably earlier, and whatever victory Vladimir managed to achieve, it was clearly not enough to turn the boot-wearing Bulgars into vassals ready to pay him tribute. 
The people with bast shoes are the forest peoples, Slavs and Finns, who wore shoes woven from tree bark. In the tale, after the campaign is over and an eternal peace has been concluded, the Bulgars come to tell Vladimir about Islam. They're obviously familiar with their audience and his interest because they try to persuade him by offering 70 fair women to keep him amused in the afterlife. They miss their target, though, by prohibiting pork and drinking, provoking Vladimir's famous response that drinking is the joy of the Rus. The chronicler is clearly keen to downplay the German Christians, giving them the shortest passage of all the religious emissaries and reducing their message to telling Vladimir to fast, something which he, of course, is not interested in doing. Once again, a German mission to convert the Rus just can't find the right approach. Next come the Jews, and unlike the Muslim and Christian parts, this passage is believed to be a later insertion without any factual basis. Khazaria had already fallen at this point, so it's unlikely that there would be any Khazar Jewish mission to Vladimir, although there were Khazar Jews already living in Kiev. This passage was most likely added just to get in the jibe about the Jews being the failed forerunners now superseded as God's chosen people by the Christians. With these three out of the way, the chronicler has the Greek scholar sent to tell Vladimir about Orthodox Christianity ramble on for pages. It's notable that the Greek scholar is the only one to attack his rivals. Not usually a good sign. If you have the best product, you ought to be able to sell it on its merits. Anyway, after some weird and entirely baseless insults against the Bulgars and some more run-of-the-mill criticisms of the Germans, he grabs his chance to explain why Greek Orthodoxy is best by starting at the beginning and telling Vladimir the history of the world as the Church saw it. Creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, the Tower of Babel, the division of humanity into nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, battles with the Canaanites, biblical prophecies of Jesus, the Nativity, his ministry, betrayal, crucifixion and resurrection, Pentecost, the Apostles, and so on, all the way up to the Day of Judgment, with the righteous going to their reward and sinners cast into torment. And the meaning of the whole story is, of course, that the supremacy of Greek orthodoxy is all part of God's inevitable plan, set in motion way back at creation and proceeding inexorably down to this day, and therefore the Christianization of Rus is unavoidable. Vladimir's advisors quite rightly tell him that everybody talks their own book, and so he decides that he should send his own envoys to visit the Muslims, German Christians and Greek Christians on their own territory, check out their stories and learn for themselves how each of them worships God. When they return from their missions, I think we can assume that the chronicler has just made up his own reports in line with what he thinks they should be. The Bulgar Muslims are unhappy and stink. The Germans' worship is empty, devoid of any sense of glory. In contrast, the Greeks worship in indescribable splendour such as never been seen on earth. 
Their churches are literally heavenly. Having seen them, nothing else will satisfy. Okay then, it's always helpful when there's a clear-cut winner. But although Vladimir seems to be convinced, this does not result in any action at this time. Even if we allow that it's true that some kind of mission took place, the story is a little strange. Muslims and Jews had been living in Kiev practically as long as the Rus. If Vladimir's campaign against the Bulgars had been successful, he would have had Muslim subjects to go along with the Christian subjects that he already had. It's quite improbable that Vladimir would actually have needed outside help to inform him what these religions were. The more likely scenario here is that Vladimir is managing his retainers. Recall that Sviatoslav had rejected Olga's attempts to convert him on the basis that his men would have laughed at him. The purpose of these audiences with religious representatives and the reports detailing how impressive the societies they came from were could be part of an effort to build consensus for the eventual choice. Vladimir may have learned something from the imposition of his state paganism. It's very possible that the reaction seen in the tale, that his idols and sacrifices were seen as something alien and had difficulty gaining popular support, echoes the actual real-life reaction. If that is the case, Vladimir may have realized that he needed a broader base of support for his next attempt at religious innovation, and therefore he needed to conduct a campaign to persuade the Rus notables to throw their support behind the conversion, rather than imposing it as a top-down decision. This could also be the reason why, even though Vladimir seems to have been convinced in favour of conversion to orthodoxy, he does not actually make the move to convert at this time. One other thing that we can see is that he seems to have already decided on the kind of religion he wanted. All the candidates are monotheistic, with a strong literary tradition, and a structure that would enable a uniform, unifying tradition to be imposed across a diverse population. And we can also see that that population is continuing to expand, even while Vladimir tries to come up with a way to consolidate it. He's out there campaigning almost every year, re-establishing dominance over tribes that had drifted away while Sviatoslav was campaigning in the south, or bringing entirely new territories and people into Rus. Here he re-establishes his control over the Vyachians, a Slavic tribe inhabiting the area from the Oka and Moskva rivers to the Don, including the future site of Moscow. He also conquers the Yatvindians, a Baltic people living across what is now Belarus, Lithuania and Poland, who are ancestors of modern Lithuanians, and the Radimichians, Slavs living around the Upper Dnieper and Desna. But now the stage is set for what I think it's fair to call the defining event of his reign. Join me next episode as we try to figure out what actually happened at the conversion of Rus, and what the tale wants us to think happened. It's been a while since I asked, but if you are enjoying listening to the show on a platform that lets you rate or review, please consider taking a minute to do so. Thank you for listening.
And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>